one of the themes in the book of Ephesians, one, one Lord, one family, one baptism. Uh, and, and when I think of our family, and I think of, in particular, our adopted daughters, I mean, that's not a phrase that we use. We don't say this, these are our adopted daughters. They are our, our children. Uh, I think other families, other adoptive families would probably say something similar is that you forget that they weren't, you forget there was ever a time when they weren't part of your family. Uh, you are truly one family, um, one household, one in every way. And so when I think of that phraseology, that, that language of Ephesians, one Lord, one baptism, uh, one new man, all those kind of ideas of one, uh, connecting it to the sto our, our family story, it's that idea, these are my daughters, and it's like they never were not our daughters. They were always, uh, we were always one family. Uh, and the, the time came where that came to a completion and we will be one family going forward. And so that's what we've been brought into. And when, when scriptures talk about that, our adoption, our being uh, children of the living God, um, this, this oneness that's from the beginning and to the end um, of time. Well, good morning to you all. Last week, we had a joyful beginning of getting into the book of Ephesians, which, uh, my, in my opinion, probably has, along with Romans, some of the most rich, deep theological understanding that can help us understand God better than, than, than we would without those two books. I mean, it is so helpful, but it also means that it brings with it many thoughts of verses 3 to 12 today, but I feel like I need to really give context from last week just in case you're not here, but also to give fuller explanation, uh, especially as we read these verses today. So last week, as we were in verses 1 to 6, uh, we looked at what it means to be chosen by God uh, before the creation of the world. In other words, the choosing of God to, this is going to be my family, much like an adoptive family choosing to adopt a child, so too those who are in the family of God, God chose, but in his case, he had always chosen. They, it always was going to be that those who are part of his family were part of his family. Uh, for him, before, again, the, before the creation of the world, before time ever existed, it always was. And so we cannot get our minds around the idea that God had already known who was going to be his children, and he never had a beginning point of that knowledge. It always was. And then for those of us that are part of that family, we were predestined then to be his heirs, the firstborn. Literally meaning that uh, when it says in the text adopted to sonship, it says it that way because in the Greek, it's a single word that highlights that it's not just an adoption so that there are more laborers in the family or that you get to be a part of a household. No, you are adopted into firstborn son status. And this is both for men and women who are adopted into the kingdom of God, God's family. So therefore, there is an inheritance that comes with those who are chosen by God, which again is an amazing and beautiful thing. And it says that God did this in love, much like an adoptive family where they're adopting a child. 
That love that they, they have for that child on day one is like the, the first day of when they saw a child born. It, it's instantaneous. The, the heart is there. And there's a journey to, the, to those decisions that, that God and us as parents experience when you choose a child and they come into you, toward, towards your home. And this love is what we have to keep in mind in all of this because it may seem a little uh, rubbing of the soul, if you will, to say that God chose you, you did not choose God. And, uh, and so I mentioned a couple of theological frameworks last week, and I didn't give definition to them, but I will today. Um, as a form probably the, in the Protestant uh, church or non-Catholic church, these are the two main schools of thought when it comes to a theological camp uh, that might be different from another. And there are denominations that literally form around these different points of view. So the first one is Arminianism. Arminianism would be those that, that are part of a theological stream that believes that human beings have a free will and that God's sovereignty does not control all events uh, on earth. So again, they, they believe that while God is sovereign, there is, he does not control everything, the things that are happening on this earth, that includes a lot of evil, includes a lot of suffering. Those are things that, that God has not controlled. Uh, they've happened because of man's free will. And, uh, and so that's the lens by which that theological point of view carries. Then there is the Reformed point of view, or also known as Calvinism. And I get this uh, definition directly out of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and it says this, it is a theological tradition that emphasizes the sovereignty of God in all things, man's inability to do spiritual good before God, and the glory of God as the highest end of all that occurs. So in other words, in Calvinism, it, it emphasizes that God's sovereignty is such that all things that happen on the spaces of the earth is under God's supreme control, and man therefore is unable to do spiritual good before God unless God helps, and that the glory of God is the ultimate fulfillment of man's purpose here on this earth, is that we are to give glory to God along with all of creation. But here is the mystery. Now, how is it that there's two significantly large camps that are the part of the church of God and they exist and have grown as churches when they have what seems to be incompatible points of view. Yet, both form their points of view from Scripture. So this leads to what I would say is a mystery. How does God's will and our will intersect together in, in a way that seems to be incompatible as the scripture describes, that God is sovereign and that there is a will of man, or at least a will that he is responsible for. So having said that, I'm going to give you three things that we can hang on to that we can say, we can stake our flag there regardless if you're Arminian or Reformed, and we, we can say, this is what the scripture teaches, but then how they intersect, again, remains a little bit of a challenge. So let's hold on to some indisputable truths. First one being this. Scripture teaches fully 
that God is indeed sovereign and his will will prevail and always does. So Proverbs 19, 21, the wisest man to ever walk on this earth, Solomon, he was the one that said, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's will that will prevail. So it's Proverbs 19, 21. We, we know from many scriptures how God's sovereignty is always in action. And, and we can see that even the sins of mankind fall into God's plan. And, we, and so we cannot say that this is not, it's scripture supports it from beginning to end that God is indeed sovereign and his will will prevail and always does. So then number two, indisputable truth that we can hang on to regardless of whether you're Arminian or Reformed is that if left to us, we would never will for ourselves or have faith in God. It's very clear in scripture. If left to us, we would never will for ourselves or have faith in God without his help. How do I get this? Philippians 2.13, it says that it is God who creates within us the desire for his will and to conform to his will. And then Ephesians 2.8, where it talks about salvation, it says salvation is by grace through faith, and that faith is not by works, but a gift of God so that no man can boast. So in other words, that even the faith that we have to trust that, 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 that God is God and he is holy and righteous and that we as mankind are all sinners, imperfect, and therefore fall short of the glory of God, are therefore in need of saving because those sins then cause us to fall short and therefore separation from God. But because God loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that by his perfect life and a sinless death is able to pay once and for all for the penalty of your and my sins. That statement there, when we choose to believe in that and we have faith in that work, we only get there because God has put inside of us the desire for it and the awareness of it and therefore the willingness to submit to it. And by faith, accept that which we have not seen with our own eyes, but we accept by the work of God in us the testimony we receive through his scriptures. So this indisputable truth that God is sovereign and his will always prevails and if left to us, we would never will for God or have faith in God except for through his work then number three, this is also true, and this is a tension, and it seems difficult for the mind, but man makes choices that will grieve and also please God. There are choices we make that absolutely anger and grieve God and stir up his wrath, and there are choices we make that please him and bless him and causes his face to be upon us in favor. Those things are also very specifically stated in Scripture, which is why we can hold to the idea that there are two seemingly incompatible truths, that there is a God whose sovereign will will always prevail, and there is mankind who makes choices that will defy God, will not please God, and stirs up his wrath, and therefore holds us accountable for all that we've done wrong. 
How you reconcile those two things is very challenging, but they are nonetheless true. So as we go into the text today, we are going to wrestle through what the text says. We're going to let the text speak, and we'll, we'll call out the various things where that tension is very difficult to make sense of, uh, but we'll do so with the help of God. So let's pray, pray right now, and then we'll jump into the scriptures. So Father God, I will admit, this is some of the more difficult things to understand, because we as finite human beings, trying to understand an infinite God is impossible. There are only things we can understand that where mystery has been removed because of your work. And you give us these scriptures where we can understand much, but there are things we still are seeking to learn. So I ask God that as we go into your word today, that we by your Holy Spirit will gain new understanding, new appreciation for your heart as a loving God and to appreciate the work that you do among mankind to draw us into faith and a relationship to you. So we submit ourselves to you in this time now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's go into the text. We're going to reread parts of last week. So we're going to begin in verse 3 and we'll continue on to verse 12 today. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, and under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were with the first to hope, put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So let me remind you of a disclaimer I shared last week that because most of us have grown up in the church, and have been formed under the perspective of either the Arminian perspective or of the Reformed perspective. As we teach through this today, you're going to be listening for certain things. The more astute you are in understanding these things and have studied in them, you're going to be looking for ways to check the boxes. And I want to tell you right now, fully expect to be disappointed by the end. All right? This is a disclaimer as a pastor. Be to be disappointed at the end because there are some things that cannot be easily explained. And so there is mystery in the text, but there is understanding to seek, and that's why we continue to go to the Scriptures, is because we are pursuing to grow in our understanding. Now, I will say this. Having already defined the two camps, 
there is challenge or caution I need to give to the extremes of both. For the Arminian, where you go to the furthest extreme, where I believe you begin to create error in your perspective of God, is when you, in your prayer life or in your gatherings of other people, that you presume upon God that God must by the way you pray. Now, what do I mean by that? The Arminian, often in the extremity of the way they pray, can go, and again, this is in extremes, can get to a place where they would say, well, if I pray this way, God will. Or if I pray along with other people, and there's enough of us praying in the same way, and we pray the right words, and we pray it with the right spirit of belief or the level of belief correctly, God will. Which then means God must. Because if we pray it right, and we pray it with the full amount of faith, God must. And that's where the danger in the extreme, not, not the norm, but the extreme in the prayers, is that there can be this subtle uh, movement towards believing that God will always respond to mankind if they're doing it all by the right heart. But I will also then give charge and challenge to my Reformed brothers and sisters, where I would say to them, the, the extreme there is to come to a place of great apathy because you believe that God is in, in, in control in all things. So therefore, no matter what I do, it's going to be as God chose. And so it can lead to a, an apathetic approach to life because we trust in the grace of Christ. He'll cover anything I do wrong and he'll cover anything that I do right and it's going to come from him anyway. So therefore, there's no responsibility. And it can cause, and again, in the extreme forms, a lack of passion for the lost. And I think that's one of the greatest concerns I have there, is that with those who pursue into the greatest measure, in the extreme aspects of it, they'll stop learning in Scripture and they'll just simply say, well, it's all in God's hands, which is true. But then to assume that there is no response that I have or challenge in that process of what God does. And there is a caution there. Because Paul, who wrote these scriptures that we are talking about today in Romans and Ephesians and other letters, Paul is the one who says, I would give up my own salvation if, for my, if my brothers and sisters were to gain it. His passion for the lost never waned by what he wrote down by the power of the Holy Spirit in these things. So we are going to, with, with commitment to the text, be willing to receive the critique to make sure that we are operating under the direction of the Holy Spirit, carefully making sure that we are not going to the extremes, but we are going to continue to hold and seek and learn truth and let the Scripture handle the tension and we don't settle it for God. Are you with me on this? All right, so here we go. This is a challenge. And again, I recognize there is going to be uncomfortability as we go through this. But we're going to let the text speak, and we'll see where the text will take us. So we've already received and heard from in the text, in verse 4, that he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Verse 3. And that is fascinating to me. That God chose, now again, that choice wasn't at any particular time. It predates time. So it was always there, God's choice. There was not a beginning of that choice to where he saw those in his family as holy and blameless. That 
to me blows my mind because we talked about last week, if we were to assign one other person in this room to shadow your life, so each of us had a shadow for a week, would at the end of the week they be able to say that you are perfectly holy and perfectly blameless? No. But yet God says in verse 3 that for those I've chosen in Christ, I look at them, I see them through a lens of being holy and blameless. That's completely miraculous to me. And then he goes on to say that he also in love predestined, predetermined those children that are going to be a part of his family that are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And again, we already talked about that adoption was not just a mere adoption. It was to firstborn status, the inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. Those who are part of the family of God inherit all that heaven offers. Beautiful in, in that sense. But then as we see that all of that is to the praise of his glorious grace, because none of us earned this, it's by grace. He says this in verse 7. And it's a key understanding to, to how this all happens, how this choosing happens, how this predetermined happens. It's through the work of Christ. Verse 7, it says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So I'm going to pause for a moment. I will tell you this. Verse 7 could probably be a sermon series on its own. And verse 11, when we get there, could as well. And then each verse in between can be its own sermon. So there's a lot here that we're going to have to unpack. But in verse 7, I will say this. Key word in this is that in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption or redeemed, what it means is to be released. And it was used in the time when this was writing as a term of release from some kind of bondage that a person might have. Now that bondage could be due to penalty of, an, of a sin or a, a breaking of the law. But it could also be that they were in bondage by birth. Just simply being born. And so to be set free or released from your bondage or from the penalty that you caused was when the term redeemed would be used. So for us, when it says here, in Christ you have been redeemed through his blood, it is to say you have been released by his blood, that's the payment, that's how the releasing happened, and it's releasing you from the penalty of your own sins. So from your mistakes, from the things you've earned. So he is redeeming you, by the things, from the things that have embondaged you from your sins. You know, we, we know in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that gift in Christ, that redemption story, happens by his blood. So a sinless death. So he took upon death as a sinless human being. Fully God, fully man, he took on that sin and died, took our penalty. Therefore, for those who God has chosen to be a part of his family, he releases them from the penalty or the bondage of their sin. 
So we've already sung in a song today, those shackles are no more. You're going to hear after this sermon, we're going to do two songs, and one is a hymn, and you're going to hear, and the fetter is no longer in control. And the fetter was a bondage or, or stocks that they put your ankles in so that you could not move. You were stuck in a position. Fetters were most often used in a ship when they were slaves charged to row a, a large warship or a boat. And they were not allowed to move. They must continue to row. And so the fetter has been released. We have been released because of the heirs of our way through the blood of Christ. We are released and therefore redeemed. And then we're redeemed then, not just set free, but then we become inheritors. So this is so significant that not only are we guilty and then made guiltless and seen as blameless, but then he's like, and I'm not going to stop there. I am going to give you my household. You are going to be an inheritor of my kingdom. Amen? Amen. So this is an amazing teaching right here in verse 7. And, and I want to say that there's a key word here that I want to explain a little bit because it's repeated throughout the text from verse 3 to verse 14. And we'll teach 13 and 14 next week. And it's this word kata. So when we see here in verse 7, that in him we redeemed through his blood, through the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Okay, so in accordance to. Um, that comes from the Greek word kata, which means to be kind of like in the standard of, or into full alignment, or to fulfill the entire template of. And so you're going to see in the NIV, it'll use the words according to, or conforming to. So in other words, adapting or adopting to the form of God or in its fullness measure. So in this case, what he's saying is that God redeemed us. He released us from the penalties that we've earned. But he did this not only through the work of, of Jesus' uh, blood being sacrificed on the cross, but he did it to the fullest measure according to the fullness of his grace. So... God is grace to the fullest end, all right? So when you understand his entire being is filled with grace, so also then the grace he gave us was not part of his grace. It was not most of his grace. It was to the fullest measure of his grace that he gave to you and I to become redeemed. So he did not hold back. In fact, when you understand the, the term lavished, what it comes out of the Greek, the best way I can describe how that term would be used today instead of the term lavished would be he did not hold back. He spent silly money. You know what I mean? When somebody just spends silly, they are like, they're going, they're going beyond what you would think is necessary. I mean, think about it. If we took the person in this room that's of the least respect. And we're, and we're having, and we know that. And God's talking to us. How much grace should I give that person? Well, they're pretty lazy. And they, they kind of take advantage of a lot of people. So don't give them a whole lot because they may not, they may take advantage of it to a fault. And it wouldn't be used there. And then let's say that they chose, that we were like, oh, God says, well, who do you respect most in this room? Uh, then I think of that person, and, and then, well, how much grace should I give them? Well, they're, 
They are very responsible. They're so good. I would give as much grace as you possibly can. Good thing that I am not the counsel of God. Because the good news is, from the least to the greatest in the room, and I do not have in mind who those people are, just in case you're getting richy in your seat, God lavishes his grace upon all of us. He spent it silly, if you will, upon all of us. And so we are redeemed. All of us were sinners, were redeemed, were released from the penalty of those sins. And this was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it results in our forgiveness. And all of this was an act of grace to the fullest end of God's measure. So as we continue on, keep in mind that when you see according to or conforming to, it is literally speaking to the fullness of God. Not in part, but the fullness of God. So let's continue on into verse 8 and 9. So it says at the end of that, he says, He lavished that grace upon us, so then with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Whew. Okay, so again, a lot of things being stated there. So in verse, verse 8 ends with, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which was purposed in Christ. So let me start there. So he mentions the word mystery. Now again, in the original language, the way this term is understood is that it's, in other words, something that you've been initiated into or you're a part of without yet full understanding. So it's not fully known yet. Like, I mean, let's, let's just say this. I'm going to ask a question here. How many of you have been saved for a, a good long time? You've been a part of the family of God a long time, all right? Because some of us have been more recent. For those of you that have been in the family of God for a long time, how many of you would say, I've got it fully understood right now? Okay, not as much confidence there, right? Which is why, which is why we continue to learn. We continue to study. We continue to show ourselves approved by going to the word of God, as it says in Scripture. It is why we need the word of God to continue to inform our daily decisions. Because understanding is something that comes over time. It is something that Romans 12 talks about. That we're being transformed on a daily basis to become more and more like him. And with that comes a great understanding. So as we look at this, the mystery of God's will then, as it says in this text, so there's things that we don't understand, but all wisdom and understanding is being given to us through his will by what he's purposed in Christ. So by Christ, we have gained understanding, at least enough to come to a place of faith. It is a beautiful thing when somebody finally realizes that there is a God and he is holy. And that there is a God that is holy and just. And there is a God that is holy and just and filled with love. And you can't compartmentalize any of those three terms. He is fully just. He is fully holy. And he is fully love. 
You can't separate him. And that's what happened when you try to separate him. That's when your theology goes offline and you start affirming things that are sin. And you start saying, well, God loves. And so we got to make sure to be careful that God is not the one who changes. He is the unchanging one. We're the one that needs to change and conform to him. And so when we realize that God is holy and just and love, and then we realize that we, if left to ourselves, are not holy, we are not just, and we're not fully filled with love, then we understand there is a problem. And it separates us from God, and therefore we need God. And this is part of God revealing the mystery of, of his will to us, and it's a work of the Spirit when we come to conviction and realizing we have wronged God. And then, by that, that revelation, again, the mystery of his will being unveiled is that we, he also then reveals that Jesus becomes the bridge. The understanding of where God fixed the problem that was between us and him, where we were in shackles, he redeems us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so then, the mystery of God's will is then ultimately revealed in Christ. And so we get that part of the revelation. Then as time goes on, we understand more of what's been going on that led us to that place. But until then, we are growing in our understanding of those mysteries and wisdom that God has that he is giving to his people. Because God does not desire for you to be confused. God desires for you to know. In fact, there is understanding that is still to come. Verse 10, look at what it says. So if with all wisdom and understanding, he made his known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And these things will be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment to bring all things into unity under heaven and in earth, in heaven and on earth under Christ. So it speaks to that there are things that will come to full fruition in time. So full understanding will come in time. And in this text, you're getting something that begins to bleed into some other theology. Because we believe that Christ is coming again. And he will establish his kingdom. So we'll get better understanding. I mean, imagine Christ comes he sets up his kingdom on this earth. A lot of mystery is going to go away like that. Because we're going to see him. We're going to know his face. And we're going to see his leadership and how he will lead. But it hasn't happened yet. And so until that second coming happens, there are things that are still being grown in our understanding and our knowledge that we have to continue to seek him over. Now, many will camp out, and, and this is where the pieces of theology about millennialism, is it premillennialism, is it all millennialism, is it postmillennialism, is it pre-tribulation, is it mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, and, and if you're saying, what are you talking about? I would suggest that you take some time to look up Grudem's work, and he defines those things well. Wayne Grudem, systematic theology. But it ultimately is talking about when... Jesus will come and set up that kingdom. And the reality is he hasn't come yet to set up that in present kingdom. So therefore there's mystery as to when these things happen. And those are simply the theological camps that exist to try to explain the timing of it all. Therefore, much to argue about, if you will. 
But in this, what we can say concretely is that whenever that happens, understanding will come in greater power. So full understanding will come in time. Until then, we take Paul's lead, who wrote a lot of these things. And what did Paul say? He says, I consider all things rubbish. I consider all things rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And he spoke that as it's a continual understanding and growth. He spoke that in Romans. He spoke that as well in other epistles multiple times. I desire to know Christ and know him more. So we should take the same posture. That as we journey through this earth, there are things that we begin to understand. But yes, understanding in its fullness is yet to come. So therefore, do not stop learning. Do not stop getting into the word of God. Handle the mysteries with joy. Let the tension happen in such a way that it keeps you in a posture of, God, you're beyond me, but I continue to seek you. God loves when we acknowledge his infinite uh, capacity and our finite state, but he is welcoming that pursuit of understanding, and he's putting that desire in our hearts to grow and understand him more. Now, verse 11, as I said earlier, could, could do an entire sermon series out of this. It says there that in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So there's that in the conformity. So in other words, in the fullness of his will, in the fullness of his purposes, not in part, not just most of it, not a passing grade, but his full purposes, his full will is carried out through those he has chosen and predetermined to do the works that he's called the church to do. This is amazing to me because what it says is God has a plan that's never going to get thwarted by the enemy of God. It's never going to be unhinged. It's never going to be lacking it's always going to plan out as God had planned it to be. And part of his plan is using you and I to fulfill it. God has a plan and you are part of it. Having said that, let me read it again. In him you were chosen, having been predetermined according to the plan of him who works out everything, everything according to his purpose and his will. We were chosen according to that. And how do I know that's to fulfill it? Look at then verse 12. So he did all of this to bring out the conformity of his purpose and will in order that we, who were the first, in other words, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be then for the praise of his glory. So ultimately in all of this, for those who are in the family of God, God chose us not only to, to redeem us and release us, but to make us heirs of the kingdom of heaven and be a part of his family's growth while here on this earth. And so there is a plan that God is enacting, and I have been blessed that God did work in those that were ahead of me so that they, in 
also passed it, paid it forward so that I can come into faith. And God used them in my life to reveal his truths. And therefore, I continue in that journey and I pass it on to you. We do not withhold because for those of us who have hoped in Christ, he desires to use us to his glory. So the chief end of man, as it says in the Westminster Confession, is to glorify him, period. I know there's a fuller statement, but it's to glorify him, period. So let's pray. Giving glory to God for his great work that was done in love that set us free. Amen? Father God, I say thank you because if left to me, yes, I would not do well. I would not choose you. I would fall short. I would continue in my sin. But you did an amazing work in my heart and the hearts of many here. You then birthed that faith in them. They then became in relationship with you. You set them free from the bondage of that sin. And then, to the befuddlement of all of us, you then choose to use us for that incredible will and plan and purpose that you have for what you're doing in growing this big family. So we, may we not fall short in having vigor for what you want to do here. There are many yet to come into this family. So may you use us to be ambassadors to that end so that you can do your work in us, do your work through us, and do your work in others and through others to the praise of your glory. And you did not withhold you lavish this grace on us all. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together. We're going to sing my favorite hymn by far. One of the lines in this says, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So when we look at what binds us to him like a fetter, like shackles for a prisoner. It's his unfailing love, his goodness. Let's rejoice in him.
glory he's shown us.
early church, there was a discussion that clearly must have been happening because the writer of Hebrews addresses it in Hebrews chapter 6. They were struggling with what does it look like when you see people that have tasted of the goodness of God, that have shown fruit of the work of God in them, but then turn their backs on him. What it caused was that there was an argument that kept people in a place where they were arguing over the salvation of God to a fault. Whether it was man or it's God. And as a result, it said, you by now should be growing and eating meat from your plate, but instead you're still sucking on milk like an infant child. So the caution is, these are things to be understood and to learn but not to hold you back in enjoying the goodness of God and being on mission with him. And by God's will, we'll continue to do so. We're committed as a church to teaching the word of God. We're committed to being on mission with him because we believe he intends for his church to be the vessel by which he does life change here on this earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, armed with the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. So as we go out these doors today, we go so with the knowing that we are people that have received a grace that was lavished on us that we did not earn or deserve. But we get the privilege then as firstborns to go out these doors to the glory of God and shine the light of Christ. If you'd like to talk with someone here today, you can feel free to go to the encounter room. We'll have people back there willing to pray. If you'd like to just kind of discuss these matters uh, that, that the pastor didn't answer, there's a lot of experts in the room. So feel free to put your hand up as an expert and enjoy that conversation. Otherwise, the rest of us will just smile and embrace other conversation. God bless and enjoy this day.